Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast that's all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. So I am absolutely delighted to welcome back onto the podcast, Rachel Bidikoffer. Rachel has recently moved. I think you're now full-time at the Nikassen Center. Is that right? It's it's Niskanen Center. Niskanen. Got to practice that. Wrapping up my my uh, last semester remotely because of the virus um, at the uh, university I'm at, but yeah, I'm moving over to the Scanning Center full time. So great, great. Well, Rachel, I'm so glad to talk to you because I always wanted to talk to you kind of around this point in the primary to get a sense of what the primary tells us about the general election. But of course, now we live in a world that looks nothing like the world <laughs> that uh, that that I was talking about even a few months ago or a couple months ago when we last spoke. So first question, um, to what extent, how epically should we expect the virus to affect um, our predictions and uh, expectations for what happens in November? Well, I, like I said in my forecast update that just released um, here a couple of days ago on the Niskanen Center website, you know, this update was the post-democratic primary update. So it took into account, you know, that we now have a nominee and it's Joe Biden. And, um, you know, I'm not doing a lot of updatings on my forecast because the uh, it doesn't use polls. And so it doesn't mm-hmm. require, uh, you know, fine tuning every week. Um but, you know, I've updated it one time, and, and the first time it released was July of 2019, so it's March now of 2020, and then I'll do an update in September as well. Um, and I talk a lot about how, you know, um, we don't really know for sure what's going to happen, but we do know that there's going to be uh, eventually a public recognition of the mismanagement that Trump has done here, I and mean, he's handled in the U.S. Uh, it's very similar to the U.K., um, you know, s- slow response, um, you know, more like, a, well, what is kind of hope it goes away <laughs> type of scenario. And um, that has, of course, forced the administration then to play catch up, um, you know, and and he has right now, um, you know, relied on the fact that most Americans don't really know the things that he should be doing or could have been doing. And that will only come in the post-op uh, period. So, um, you know, he has enjoyed a little bit of what we call rally around the flag effect, um, where, you know, I guess like uh, depending on how the question's worded, about 60 percent of people say they approve of the response of the administration. But that's but actually it very sounds mild. like you're saying you're, it sounds like you're saying that might be a temporary. Oh, glitch. God, yes, yes. No, it's definitely temporary. And also in a normal administration, in this kind of circumstance, something that's external um, you know, uh, I guess, uh, you know, you're a hapless victim of what you would expect Americans to be saying is like 80 percent. Right. Uh, so, you know, the fact that he's only able to get 60 percent approval on his response tells me that his rally around the f- uh, flag effect is very mild. And it's certainly not going to be something that endures, uh, especially once the actual virus starts to, um, we're not even in the beginning stages. I mean, we're really just starting to ramp up here in the U.S. So these um, assessments are based on, for Americans, probably a perception that the that things have really escalated, but not really here. Like when we look at the um, development of the bell curve of hospitalization and mass max capacity, New York now, like as of today, is starting to hit 
like going up the the peak of their curve, right? The country at large is still way um, at the beginning of the crisis. So we have a lot to go. And, and, and of course, with him telling people that things are going to be fine by Easter, you know, when things instead are in total chaos by Easter, I think that's going to be a major public relations problem for him. I mean, that's one thing that's been really fascinating. As usual, you watch Trump and and he's just, he can't, there's, you know, there's a direct line from brain to mouth. He can't not say things, it seems. But these, he's on record with a lot of things that you can already see being used in Democratic ads. In fact, Biden has already cut a couple of ads just consolidating together Trump's statements about coronavirus um, that were, you know, subsequently proven to be untrue. And he's still saying all these things. Now, the media will go, oh, well, you know, it's Trump. Truth doesn't matter. We're in a post-truth era, et cetera, et cetera. Do we expect, um, I mean, there's two things, right? First of all, there's the terrible human tragedy of the virus and there's loss of life that we expect. There's society, you know, might be shut down in November still. We don't know. Then there's the second thing of will people understand the trajectory of what Trump said and did and didn't say and do? Do we have enough time between now and November for people to process that and get that in their heads? Well, number one, I mean, it's going to be up to the campaigns to make sure people understand the two major inflection points that Trump has, you know, mismanaged this crisis. And that's at the beginning when he decided to forego the international test because he wanted to keep the number of infected rates down with his goal of protecting the stock market. Right. And number two, his decision and just absolute stubborn uh, refusal to invoke the Defense Production Act which would have allowed us to go into production for not only the PPE supplies that we're going to run completely out of, um, but also the ventilators. Because we have not yet hit um, the max of that. We're nearing hospital capacity in the major cities. But like I said, by mid-April, there are going to be reports every day on the news of people dying because they could not access these basic supplies. And the coverage is going to focus on the lack of the supplies and why there was a lack of them, right? So right. it's you know he's set up to he set himself up quite horrendously to fail. Uh, but yes, I mean I think there's going to be a pretty uh, you know so here's the thing like when it's a Ukraine you know pay for play um, in election interference it's an abstract thing for Americans especially because Democrats are terrible at messaging about it and they didn't pay to run national ads about it and they relied on hodgepodge third-party groups to run an ad here and there on Fox News. But for this, this is going to hit home. I think every American is going to know somebody who died. And, you know, you just can't spin your way or ignore your way out of that. I think it's going to be, um, you know, the job issues, the economic damage, and the, um, you know, the death rate and, and, um, you know, personal cost is just, it's going to be something that is going to be hard for him to, uh, to get out of the way he usually does. So tell us about your new model. So you've posted an updated model following the primaries and incorporating a lot of this information. What is it telling us now? So, I mean, the model, you know, fundamentals of the model have not changed much. Again, the, there's only a few features in the model, and these are fixed factors. Partisan competition of the district or state, um, the um, college education rates, 
populations and the racial composition of the area are the three um, factors that go into the forecasting model. And those are obviously fixed, right? Um, but I, I bring into it a, a qualitative handicapping process, right? Uh, and what I did was I moved Arizona to um, from toss up to lean Democrat based on the um, understanding of, you know, Mark Kelly being the Senate nominee, knowing that the Senate race is going to be very likely to uh, flip to the Democrats. Um, I, you know, I'm pretty strongly convinced that uh, Arizona is going to be blue in the Electoral College and blue in both Senate seats by the conclusion of this election. And um, also um, moving Georgia from lean red to toss up because when the initial forecast was released, there was one Senate race in Georgia and now there are two. And mm -hmm. these are probably going to be the two pivotal seats for control for the Senate because, um, you know, Democrats need, they're probably going to lose the Alabama Senate race. So with what their potential gains are, they're going to probably, Georgia is probably going to be the epicenter. And why does the Senate have an impact on the presidential race? What's the, what's the mechanism there? Well, I mean, all of our races now in America have become nationalized and more correlated. So it wasn't always the case that the Senate and the House and the presidential vote was highly correlated. But over the past couple of decades, people's votes have become aligned on those three, especially on the Senate and the presidency. Um, but even now on the House, where people are voting what we call straight tickets, so president, Democrat, Senate Democrat, House Democrat. Um, where Republicans outperform Democrats, though, is that they have taught their voters or do a better job um, getting their voters to understand the importance of the congressional ballot. So a Democrat's experience what we call uh, drop-off balloting mm -hmm. at a much higher rate. Um, so I was talking to a candidate today, won't say which race, but in their primary election, on the Republican side, there was about a thousand voters that dropped off voting in the Republican symbolic primary, Trump and nobody, right? Uh, and the congressional race and on the race for the Democratic congressional primary and the um, primary between Biden and Sanders, there were 8,000 voters that dropped off. So mm -hmm. that's a huge problem for Democrats um, and something that the party really needs to work with, work on. Right. Okay. Well, that brings us to the other area that I wanted to talk about, because when you and I very first spoke, um, you said to me that we should be watching primary turnout to understand um, how the, how well the model is going to hold up and our prospects in November. So I've been watching primary turnout and I'm really confused by it. <laughs> Um, I was hoping for massive turnout surges um, and we saw a mixed, it felt to me like we were seeing mixed results. Some states you were seeing um, reasonable increases in turnout compared to 2016. Some states were considerably higher than 2016. Some states were approaching the sort of 2008 watershed, but then um, they that wasn't necessarily useful information because the population in that state had changed. I'm not sure how to interpret primary turnout. So help me out, Rachel. What, what do I need to know? Yeah, I've been meaning to go back now that election dust has settled and there's, um, you know, fixed numbers in there so we can adjust for population change. But even just roughly looking at it, that's not quite the way that the story unfolds. The story unfolds more so with a really weird, um, like, unexpected start, right? With yeah. that 
Iowa was weird. Flat line in Iowa. And then, you know, in New Hampshire, you get something in between, um, you know, 2008 and, and 2016. And you're right, what we what we should or would want to see is at least 2008 and maybe even better, right, proportionately. Um, and then, you know, just when you thought, oh, what the heck is going on with the Democrats? Is it potentially the um, amount of candidates is, is turning people off? Um, it's, you know, there's too much choice that it's discouraging people to, to have to make one because that's when you give people in choice architecture too much choice is, is sometimes overwhelming for people. Yeah. So, um, you know, and it may be that because as we moved through the winnowing, all of a sudden, you know, that turnout problem just kind of went away and we see what we expected to see, which was especially in the Super Tuesday states turnout that looked exactly like 2008 turnout. Mm -hmm. which is a very good sign for Democrats and exactly what the model anticipated seeing. However, you know, then, you know, the virus came along and just killed all the turnout after. So we had Super Tuesday in the March 10th primaries, I think. But by the March 17th primary, which was the floor, whichever when the Florida uh, contest was in, you can't look at that contest for turnout because um, the country was on lockdown already for that. Yeah. And, yeah so the, it definitely impacted turnout and we're never going to be able to now get another accurate count on turnout because of this virus. Right. So it's totally washed out right. that it, all we'll ever know is, is really what we know now. So it's kind of a mess. Good, but weird is basically yeah, what I think you're saying. Really nice to be able to see like how at least, you know, the next, you know, that Florida set of races, the 17th would have been really nice to have because, you know, but, but it was clear, I think, I mean, as soon as Super Tuesday happened, it was clear that Biden was going to be the nominee, um, you know, but the public probably didn't realize that. So, you know, the seven, the, the March 10th primaries had really robust turnout. And then, you know, we just can't, I really would love to have had that 17th on you know, unpolluted by yeah. the virus, but it just, it just was. So we'll never know what would have happened. I mean, we know in Florida, Democrats outvoted Republicans. We, I do know, you know, there's, here's what I do know. We, we saw the kind of turnout we needed to see in, in some of the primary contests, the later contests, but not the early ones. Right. Mm -hmm. And I do know that we saw the kind of turnout I expected to see on the Republican side for a purely symbolic primary that never had any advertising in it. Yeah. And, so that and, was unusually high for a for a single candidate primary, wasn't it? Oh, yes, very very high and the only person in the country who probably wasn't surprised to see it is me. I would assume. And, and maybe Trump, he was, you know, who 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 was Well, that's probably true too. <laughs> I mean, anybody who read my new republic piece carefully and follows me, you know, religiously on Twitter, would not be surprised too, because I've been trying to tell people for a year, hey guys, you know, the thing that I learned from 2018 is there's no the Republican Party, the Republican voter is not dis disaffected. They are yep. in love with this guy and they are super jazzed to show up and vote for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So basically, their side, we're confident, will turn out. Our oh, side, we. Absolutely think and i say our side my side <laughs> the democrats um we we feel good about turnout there but um but but because so many crazy things happen it's it's 
we don't have enough of a data set to be absolutely confident of that, basically, is, is I think I'm, what you're I'm saying. I'm still confident in it. Right. I, I saw enough on Super I love your confidence, Rachel. Yeah. It, it, it boys me up. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, if luckily this virus didn't come before Super, you know, because yeah. all I had to go on was what I saw in Iowa and New Hampshire. You know, there were... Iowa, I can I can come up with reasons. I mean, the impeachment trial broke up the caucus really badly. I mean, even the day of it, of the actual caucus, um, yeah. you know, half of main candidates were back in D.C. Yeah, you know, that's true. Uh, uh, and then the day before was the Super Bowl, which apparently has never happened before. No, like so, you could not campaign the day before the caucus, right? Because it's Super Bowl Sunday, so you're definitely not knocking on doors, you know? Yeah. Um, so, and then there's all these candidates, and you have to be in a public setting. And, you know, I don't mean to say that, you know, some candidate supporters are a little aggressive about their support. But, you know, there could be a disincentive to show up and have to deal with not supporting the right candidate and getting yelled at, you know? So, like, Iowa, I think you can kind of rationalize a, a little bit, but, what, you know, New Hampshire is kind of harder to explain. Like, why why wouldn't it have been at 2008 levels, right? Uh, but then you just kind of see that problem go away with the remaining contest. I mean, North Carolina or uh, South Carolina was through the roof, and so was, um, you know, the... Uh, Super Tuesday states. So, so one thing that at least one of the campaigns was expecting to happen in terms of turnout and didn't happen. So Bernie Sanders' campaign, their argument was that they are uniquely well placed, not just to earn the votes of young people who do vote, but to drive more disaffected, especially younger left-leaning voters to the polls than we would normally see. Those numbers did not show up, I believe, in the primary votes. And yet, the actual turnout surges that we saw seem to go mostly for Biden. Does what do you what, how do you explain that? You know what some people see as a counterintuitive result. Well, I mean turnout surges, right? Turnout surged over 2016, and it has nothing to do with Bernie Sanders or nothing to do with Biden. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? So it's about Donald Trump, and it's about this Trump backlash and my research and negative partisanship and you know the reason it surged in the suburbs is because white college educated voters are the ones that are most likely to freak out about donald trump and that's why their turnout is surging so it's just happenstance that you know it, it happens to be the biden is the candidate that you know white college educated voters are aligning with they're not going to align with the most radical candidate to ever you know be a yeah. finalist for the party's nomination obviously right uh, but if it had been Klobuchar or Buttigieg or whatever, right, that's who they would have aligned with. So it's not Biden. And then, you know, you know, Sanders was never going to drive a youth revolution. He didn't even in 2016 when the con when the um, context was more conducive to policy revolution. In 2020, the atmosphere was, oh, my God, someone save us from the bad man, not, hey, I want to have a political revolution. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you know, there's a lot of people would push back at me and, you know, slice this this thing and that thing to try to get to some evidence of youth turnout increase in 2016. And I was like, look, any way you cut it, Sanders cleaned it up on the youth vote in 2016. That's an indisputable fact. He cleaned it up in the youth vote in 2022, okay? But and still lost the nomination both times. But he didn't drive a youth turnout surge. Yeah. Youth turnout did go up in 2020, but so did every other group's turnout. So it got absorbed in a 
you know, total turnout surge. Do you see what I'm saying? Like it doesn't uh, stand out because it's a yeah. turnout surge of everyone. And that turnout surge is powered by negative partisanship and Trump backlash, not by the desire for a policy revolution. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Sanders has not quit the race. He remains in the running. Um, although it seems to me mathematically impossible. I can't calculate any way that he could come out with even a, a clear plurality of votes, let alone the majority that uh, that the rules are called for. Do you think Sanders remaining in the race is going to be a problem for Joe Biden? And what if he stays in the race right through the convention? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a problem for the Democratic Party's efforts to beat Donald Trump. So let me broaden it out and take it away from the personal. Biden and thus all of us. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, the, the you know, because it, it, the, the, you're right, it's a mathematical fact that Bernie Sanders cannot be the nominee. He will not be the nominee. It is even more conclusive at this point now, this cycle, than it was conclusive last time at this point in the last cycle, although at this point in the last cycle, it was also conclusive, right? But, you know, this time it really, really is conclusive. He cannot win. So I, I don't know what his motivation would be to stay in. Now, I just put a thread about this um, two days ago or yesterday, and I talked about, look, usually when a candidate has a mathematical loss, cannot win, they, an issue advocacy candidate will stay in to push the party on policy. Now, that's mm -hmm. bad for the party's goal to win the general election but you know usually ideologues don't care about you know electability they care about policy so in terms of bernie sanders perspective and his followers his group of the party that's an ideal right push the push biden to adapt more bernie sanders policy push him to the left so from the party's perspective or from the perspective of maximizing the probability of beating donald trump that's not ideal, but from the um, perspective of progressive leftists and Bernie Sanders, that's an ideal. But um, what's atypical about the scenario we're in right now is that actually Sanders has this position and this possibility because of the economic collapse where he might be more beneficially, strategically beneficial for him to quit the race right now and offer to um, basically join the Biden campaign working to bring in his revolution people um, to get them to vote for Biden because then he's an insider. And in this scenario, when the status quo has been destroyed through collapse, like a crisis collapse, like we're seeing now, being an insider is far more beneficial in terms of influencing policy than just yeah. being an outside agitator. I mean, I completely agree with that. That would be my calculation at this point. And I think, you know, you look at Elizabeth Warren, who has basically full-time pivoted to influence working as hard as you can within the Senate influence democratic uh, stimulus packages and and really work with the leadership in terms of making sure there's accountability. I mean, she's basically pivoted to her previous position, I would argue, of being kind of an inside the movement party um, policy advocate for moving in a particular direction. Yeah, That's so never it, been Sanders MO, though. Yeah. So what it comes down to is, is here's where the rubber is going to hit the road on Sanders. Right. Now we're going to find out. Is it about Sanders or is it about the policy, right? Because if it's about Sanders, then yeah, you stay in there. And even though you can't win because it makes you feel good and people are, you know, sending you love letters and whatever, right? Uh, but it's symbolic. It's decreasing the party's probability of winning. It's decreasing, it's increasing the likelihood because the GOP is, is kind of like a major component of their 2020 strategy 
that they learned from watching the Russians is to target these Sanders people. And, and there's two types. I mean, there's, um, you know, you don't get to 25, 22% in a state off of just like pure ideologue, progressive, Bernie or bust people, right? So the, the you know, there's one type that are gonna, you know, go over to Biden because they wanna be Trump. But that core base, those people are gonna be targeted, heavily targeted in a multi-million dollar uh, effort by the RNC and by the Trump campaign with propaganda, misinformation, disinformation, that's going to try to tap into their angst about Biden, about the D-trip, about the DNC, uh, to try to make them protest ballot because the Republican Party, Brad Parscale, the Trump campaign manager, they have long understood that they have a math problem. They cannot win an election that is a two-person race. They have to try to find a way to get um, the left to fracture. And so they have made this a major component of their campaign strategy. And you have already seen it play out. Um, you know, Kevin McCarthy, who's the House Minority Party leader, will you know, send out tweets about how Bernie is getting screwed over by the party establishment and, you know, uh, the Montana GOP just paid to put the Green Party candidate on the ballot. Like, this is not an accident. It's not some kind of like a organic accidental yeah. effort, right? It's, it's a strategy. They, and they've got this massive left-wing media apparatus that actually gets far more media traffic than like say msnbc does right and they're basically going to weaponize it against itself and that's that's the plan and, and and sanders can make that a lot easier for them or a lot harder and you know and like i said because of the economic collapse i think he has an incentive to you know say hey look you know what i want to get involved on the inside i because i mean that's what the tea party did right i mean the you can agitate all you want all day long from the outside. But if you're serious about getting shit done, you infiltrate the inside, right? Yeah. So we'll find out if for Bernie, if it's about him or if it's about the movement. Because if it's about the movement, then I would expect him to understand he's got this opportunity and him to seize it. Yeah, I guess it's just, I mean, it mystifies me slightly, but it feels like it, if that was going to happen, I can't see why it hasn't happened already. So He's been pretty busy this week, as he would say himself. You know, I'm yes. pretty busy right now, yeah? Right. And I think that's a definitely a legitimate uh, thing. Yeah. And I think people should lay off, you know, the idea that, you know, he's going to have time to even, I, I, I would assume the senator has been pretty damn busy trying to save America. Um, but I, I think now is about the time where he should have some, oxygen to spend on that decision and and i think yeah. you know you think about you know what is the end goal if the end goal is moving american policy in a progressive direction this is an unprecedented opportunity for him to turn that movement into you know real achievement i think all right rachel i know you've got a limited amount of time i have one other question for you and then if you're good with it i'd like to play the gut check game for just a few minutes so my final question is, um, Joe Biden is now the nominee, uh, presumptive nominee, we can say. Um, what is his best vice presidential pick to propel him into the White House? What, what factors should he be considering and who would be a good candidate for him? By far, under a Biden nomination, by far the biggest weakness Democrats have is this fear that the GOP's campaign to pull off progressives will work. Uh, so I think you need to have ideological liberal somewhere on that ticket. So you go 
and you need a woman and you want to pull a black turnout too as risk mitigation strategy. So you go with the trifecta, you get Harris or Abrams, both um, of course are ideological liberals and they are female African-Americans. So it's all, you know, it's a triple header right there. All right. Well, there you go. A lot, a lot of buzz for the potential VP, Stacey Abrams. She has flown far and fast, uh, but she's extraordinary. And, and, and Senator Harris as well. All right. So, Rachel, um, the gut check game. I have in front of me, uh, longtime podcast listeners will know, my trusty Red Sox baseball cap. This week, because we're we're reeling from the coronavirus impact and trying to understand what changes that will make to um, our possible election, I have in my hat some hypotheses or scenarios that people have suggested might happen if coronavirus um, continues on the path that it seems to be going on in terms of the election and what impact it might have. And I would love to just pull one out. Pull a few of them out and have you just quickly react, um, both of us instinctively, eh, how, how likely do we think that is? Um, first option, oh, this is a fun one <laughs> I've pulled out. Trump declares martial law and the election is canceled. Oh, you want, to, want me to tell you how likely I think that is to happen? <laughs> not, I'll just say this, and, and, and I'm not a tinfoil hat person. You know, but it's not zero percent (laughs) higher than it should be, (laughs) (laughs) which should be zero. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Ooh, scary. Um, What is the possibility that either? Oh, this is a dark one. It's it's the hat. The hat is in a mood today. (laughs) Um, Given that we have um, two quite elderly um, candidates, uh, who both of whom are uh, within the high risk demographic for coronavirus. The chances that either or both candidates dies of coronavirus before the election? Oh, I'm going to say, you know, pretty low because I would assume that they're going to be protected and not shaking a bunch of hands, you know, but I mean, that's also not zero, you know? (laughs) Yeah, again, not as low as it should be. (laughs) Because Trump does go rogue and he occasionally just bolts off and shakes some hands and everybody's like, what? Hey, what? There you go. (laughs) Everybody stay safe. I don't want anybody to die, even Donald Trump. Um, Okay, here's an interesting one. What is the chance that Joe Biden wins an electoral college majority that is bigger than Obama's 2008 electoral college majority? Today, I'll put that at like 10%. 10%. So pretty low. Yeah. So, okay. So you think there's a good chance of winning, but not a good chance of winning by a landslide? Yeah, we're talking about he would have to replace Indiana and Missouri to yep. win bigger. And you could do that by winning Texas easy. I mean, yep. that offsets both of those states plus some change. Yeah. So, you know, ask me again in a couple months. Definitely okay. bring that question back. I will do that. <laughs> I'm putting it in my calendar, Rachel. <laughs> what is the chance that one or more states will actually be unable to hold an election? We've seen disruption to the primary calendar. What if it happens? What are the chances it might happen in the general? Can't ha- we can't let that happen? Is what I'll say. say yeah. And there's nothing let's make let's make it zero. <laughs> yeah. Make it must always be clear to every public official in every state that the American public will accept nothing less than zero percent for that answer. All right. Well, let's get on that because you know right now it's not zero. I would say, but we can make it zero. No, no. It must always be clear to the to the to the government that we will accept nothing less than zero percent for yeah. that. Yeah. And that means we need to prepare. Okay, what is the chance that Democrats lose their House majority? Zero. 
Never going to happen. Your Zero. model does not allow for it. Zero. <laughs> so those 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 critical swing districts that we picked up in 2018, they're still looking really favorable in your model? Oh, gosh, yes. They're going to pick up some districts. Great. I like it. I like it. More of that, please. <laughs> uh, what is the chance that Trump wins the Electoral College by more than in 2016? Zero. Definitely no? Yeah. Yeah. Because what's he going to gain? Where is he going to pick up? He's he's uh, he's made no effort. <laughs> um, what is the chance? I'll do one more. I'm Great just questions. Gonna... Did these come from your listeners? No, these are. This is just me oh. picking scenarios. <laughs> I was going to say, well, hot dog. I mean, I need these people to follow me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody follow Rachel on Twitter. She's a good follow anyway. Um, I've got. Here we go. Uh. One last one. Sorry. I'm just, I'm being selective now. Okay. What is the chance? This is a good one. What is the chance that Democrats win a majority in the Senate? Oh, that is a good one. I'm going to say 50% right now. Oh, right on the knife edge. Yep. All right. Well, you heard that guys, everybody get to work, your vote, your work, your activism, your phone call, your call to your auntie in Florida could make the difference or Georgia or Arizona could make the difference between uh, a 50, uh, 50, 50, 50, 50 shot could tip it over to a 51% shot of Democrats taking the Senate. And that's what we need. Rachel, it has been a delight to talk to you as always. And uh, as promised, we will talk again. And that's it. I hope you're well. I hope you and your family are coping with this crisis um, as well as can be expected. Um, I'm thinking of all of you and wishing all the best for all of you. If you have not yet done so, please register to vote and request your absentee ballot. It's going to be even more important um, with this rolling crisis. In particular, try and request an absentee ballot if you absolutely can, because who knows what is going to happen. Um, other than that, uh, so in order to request your ballot, you can go to votefromabroad.org if you're an American abroad or vote.org if you're an American back home. You can always reach me on Twitter. I'm at Karen Jr. That's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R on Twitter. In the meantime, um, I would love to hear from you, but in the meantime, keep well, keep safe, 